0: Oh man, the United States has some crazy ways of thinking and talking about poverty and racial inequality, doesn't it? I mean, right? Here's something I bet you didn't know about me. I am an extremely high-performing, self-righteous lib. Did you know that? I bet you didn't. I've been ranked as one of the top 10th of 1% of self-righteous libs in the entire nation. And a few years ago, the Chamber of Commerce in my hometown of Joliet, Illinois, called me one of the most vibrationally powerful self-righteous libs under the age of 40. But even though I have serious and attested self-righteous lib credentials, there are still ways of talking and thinking about poverty and racial inequality on my side of the political spectrum that I find unhelpful. For example, I will take Barbara Fields, Adolph Reed and Catherine Coleman Flowers on the topic of race over Robin DiAngelo and her diversity training based approach any day of the week. I think D'Angelo's approach leads down too many blind alleys. But maybe that's just me. But then let's be real, let's be real. The other side of the political spectrum has way more problems when it comes to talking and thinking about poverty and racial inequality. I know that you're shocked that I said that. I know, I know. For instance, there are folks going around and saying, bah, critical race theory who very clearly do not know anything about actual critical race theory. I mean, I'm a professor who makes quizzes for a living. I will make a simple quiz about basic concepts of critical race theory and give it to these folks, and we all know they're going to fail. And after they fail, they're going to be like, "Ah, it's rigged. The system's rigged. You know... I was raised in a conservative Christian household, even though my parents are now basically a Bernie bro and bro-ess. And because I was raised in a conservative community, I was exposed to the kinds of explanations and racial inequality that circulate in the right wing. And because these ideas are what I was raised with, they were also what I once believed. For example, the idea that Poor black people are poor because they lack work ethic and the will to improve, or because they have too many single parent households and are sexually immoral, or because their dependency on welfare has made them lazy, or because the list goes on, but you get the gist. And you know this stuff. And the biggest problems with all these kinds of explanations is that they fail to comprehend the nature of society and specifically the burden of history. The burden of history in the United States includes things like slavery and Jim Crow and institutional racism, and also an unwillingness to even look white poverty right in its face. The burden of history is expressed in all kinds of non-tangible ways of going about things that are hard to quantify, like traditions and attitudes and habits and practices and what have you. But the burden is also, and this is the key point for this podcast, built directly into the fucking world around us. If we look at how poor people live, and because our history of uh, because of our history, racial minorities make up an unrepresentative portion of poor people. If we look at how poor people live. We will see they are surrounded by shitty roads and bridges and unlit streets. They have worse infrastructure and often can't afford basic utility services because they don't have money and they lack clean water and sanitation and they don't have access to decent grocery stores or green spaces and they're surrounded by violence and their schools suck and they are more often exposed to pollution and other hazards and they get stressed out and because of the stress and the other things I mentioned, they get chronic diseases and they die earlier and in ways that rich folks simply do not. Inequality is not some notional abstract thing. It is built directly into our technological world. Now, this seems like an important topic to research. The question is, how can we do it? Well, we could use various qualitative research methods like archives and interviews and ethnography. And we are very lucky today to have people doing great work of exactly this kind. For example, my buddy Raquel Velo, a professor of science and technology studies at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, a cellist and an all-around badass lady, is doing some very interesting work on public transit and disability that shines good light on how we build systems unequally. But my feeling is that because the intersection between infrastructure and poverty and racial and other forms of inequality are big aggregate phenomena, we also need new creative kinds of quantitative work on the topic. And here we're lucky too. For example, you can go back and listen to the episode with Daniel Armanios, who's doing neat work uh, precisely of this sort. And, and you should check out the research of today's guest, Destiny Knock. Destiny is an assistant professor in the engineering and public policy and civil and environmental engineering departments at Carnegie Mellon University, as well as being the CEO of People's Energy Analytics, a new startup. Destiny is also simply a cool person, and I'm happy you're going to be able to meet her if you haven't already. In this episode, we start by talking about her co authored paper, The Energy Equity Gap Unveiling Hidden Energy Poverty, and then launch into a wider discussion about her career and crucial issues around infrastructure, poverty and inequality, climate change, and public policy. I had a great time talking to Destiny. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Get excited. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: No problem. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I wanted to start with your co-authored paper, The Energy Equity Gap, Unveiling Hidden Energy Poverty. Uh, Maybe we should just say by way of definition, what is energy poverty?
1: So energy poverty in a nutshell is a person or a household's inability to meet their energy needs. And this can happen for multiple reasons. When we think of the developing world, often that is where they literally related to supply concerns. So maybe there's not enough generation online. Um, When we think of the winter storm disaster in Texas, that was reliability based energy poverty. And then oftentimes the more common definition in the developed world is a lack of affordability, right? So even if you have it, there's supply, it's reliable. Can you actually afford to use all that you need? And if you can't, then you are experiencing financial based energy poverty.
0: Uh, that's perfect. So can you say what you were trying to do in your paper to kind of add to the literature?
1: Yeah, so in our paper, which is the Energy Equity Gap Unveiling Hidden Energy Poverty uh, in Nature Communications, we were working to uh, broaden our identification methods for who is experiencing energy poverty in the developed world context. Um, So one thing is the most common way that we try to identify people in the US right now for who's experiencing energy poverty is to ask what percent of their income do they spend on meeting their energy needs, right? This is called the energy burden. And if the energy burden is more than 6% or 10% in some, you know, different states have different uh, percentages, then, then they would be considered energy poor. But from my own experience, um, I was a household, when I was in grad school, we were, you know, trying to cut costs, but we lived in a house that didn't have air conditioning, And so in the summer, I had a very low energy burden, so I would Mm. not have looked energy poor at all, but I was actually at risk of having a heat stroke during heat waves. And I remember Mm. there was a time when I was taking cold showers every two hours because it was so hot on the top floor of my apartment complex. Well, it's yeah, apartment complex. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and my fan just wasn't cooling me enough, right? Yeah. Now, some of my roommates had bought window units, but the landlord did not have to supply us with one. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the cost of the window unit was just a little too high. Uh-huh. And so this underconsumption of energy is a problem. And I feel like what we were trying to do in our paper was actually present our algorithm for identifying who is under consuming energy. Mm -hmm. And so we worked with a utility company in Arizona and we were able to use smart meter data to show that low income groups wait four to seven degrees longer just to turn on their air conditioning units. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we were saying that that is the gap between high and low income groups. And This gap, one, shows that underconsumption of energy does occur based on different income groups. And then two, using this, we can try to identify who's waiting too long. So we actually identified multiple households that were waiting until it was above 80 degrees outside to start using their air conditioning systems.
0: Got it. And can you say just a bit in in terms of method, uh, method, how you were determining this? Was it just watching the households and who would turn on when? Was that the marker?
1: So for the method, we had data on the daily electricity consumption. Mm -hmm. And so then we use a regression analysis to identify the turn on points for the heating and the cooling system. Mm -hmm. And then we were able to correlate that with outdoor temperature. And we then were able to aggregate people by their different income groups. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, using that, then we um, actually found the gap between the best off group, which in this case happened to be the highest income group and the worst off group, which in this case happened to be the lowest income group. Right. We've also done some analysis, just dis- disaggregating it by race, um, yeah. by age group. And so then we were also able to look at gaps between, um, so within like, for example, the Black population, Mm -hmm. um, at some points, we saw the gap between low-income Black households and high-income Black households as wide as eight degrees Fahrenheit, right? And sometimes it would even increase. Now, there were years when it was lower, and that could indicate that everybody is equally worse off. But then mm-hmm. there are times when it's higher, which actually says, OK, now we need to change our targeting efforts for how we're going to identify and mitigate energy poverty in different households.
0: Yeah, that's great. And so why don't you, I mean, um, there's other kind of questions I want to ask you about, like the analysis, but why don't we talk about, about that policy side of it? So you have thought through like, all right, what does this mean for policy? You know, what do utilities have to do? So why don't you talk a bit about that?
1: So one thing that it means for policy is that there are households that will look very energy efficient and we mm-hmm. need to be very um, careful and think critically about what is energy efficiency and what's energy poverty, mm-hmm. right? Um, because there is this underlying assumption that households are consuming all that they need to. And that's just not the case. Yeah, I think that we have a very, um, I guess, like historic look at, energy usage data where we just look at what people have used, but we actually don't ask people what they would like to use. Right. And that is a big problem because we don't ask people, where do you want to be? Where do you want to set your thermostats versus what are you setting it at now? Yeah, right. And so when I'm thinking about policies to address this, one thing that I'm really excited about are what they call smart utility investments, where the utility invests the money in the upfront infrastructure, so the upfront capital for the infrastructure, so changing out the heating system, like adding a centralized air conditioning system, Hmm. and then the cost recovery mechanism for that is tied to the meter, right? So this Hmm. is great for low-income groups. It's great for renters because that infrastructure, people are not going to take with them. Like You're not going to rip out a centralized air conditioning unit and take it with you when you move. But the utility then can, one, decarbonize their systems, right? So now if they wanted to decommission their natural gas lines, then they can actually do that section by section. They can go to these households and say, we're going to pay the upfront capital for switching the infrastructure in your household over to electric. Mm-hmm. Um, but now the cost recovery for us doing that is going to be tied to the meter. So if you decide to move, then that's okay. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. But we're still going to get the money back because the meter's still at this address. Right. Um, And then they can also decommission section by section as opposed to waiting for people to just do it willy nilly. And then all of a sudden your low income groups are at the fringes and it's really expensive for the utility to keep to keep that thing up. But also it can be slightly dangerous. Right. Because we have, you know, natural gas going through almost empty lines, right? And it's like, Mm -hmm. did you plug them all and that type of thing. So that's something that really excites me um, within the policy landscape and I think has a lot of opportunities.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, one thing I wanted to talk to you about is, um, and I think this will come up in multiple ways over the course of our conversation, is like climate policy and its effect on equity. So something I bring up a lot is, Uh, with friends is, you know, because of the history of mass production and globalization and stuff, we've made stuff very inexpensive compared to what it used to be so much so that like, I've seen factoids, like, you know, something like 80% of poor households, in the United States have air conditioning at this point. And it's not because we've made like welfare policy, super generous. We haven't, right. It's because we've made window units, especially so super cheap, but, you know, obviously there's there's costs that come with going that route, too. But it's like, you know, a lot of my friends, when they think of climate policy, you know, it used to be like carbon taxes and stuff, which would just be raising the price of energy ultimately. Right. And it's like, well, that's going to guide people to make better choices and use less energy. But what your paper shows so clearly is how that would, you know, it shows in a yet a different way that that would impact poor people um you know really directly cuz you're showing that you know there's actually health and real well-being issues tied to like air conditioning use for for instance yeah. so i just wonder how you think through those kinds of issues of like you know these big po- climate policy issues we face and how it connects to this stuff on energy policy that you've been looking at
1: so when i think about climate policies one thing that i feel like some of the work in our paper you know has revealed is that Not everyone can receive the climate policy the same way, Mm -hmm. right? So when we think about putting a carbon tax on energy, then we need to think about who are the big users of energy, who's able to shift their energy consumption, and who's not. Right. Mm -hmm. That's why time of use pricing can be really detrimental for the low income households because they are already consuming at their minimum. And now you're making it even more expensive. And so that means that now they're going to enter an energy deficit. Mm -hmm. And that's when we start to see unsafe behaviors in low income households, like burning trash inside of your home to stay warm, Uh right? Using your oven to try to stay warm. Um, trying to, you know, use a fan when really you should be using a window unit. And there Mm -hmm. are real health consequences to raising prices in homes where people cannot shift their consumption. Um, There was a recent report um, by Iverson et al. They published it in 2020 that showed that um, over 10 years, from 2006 to 2016, uh, 224 deaths occurred indoors in one County in Arizona, Whoa. despite the presence of an air conditioning unit in all of those homes. Ah. Right. And um, I'm going to get the percents, you know, they're, they're not perfect percents, but I, I want to say like roughly half were disconnected from their electricity provider. And um, I'll say like a little over a quarter, just turned off their working air conditioning unit because they felt like they couldn't afford it. Yeah, Right. And so when people are talking about climate policies, I do think that climate policies have a place like they're important right, yeah. for getting the high income customers to shift their usage, to reduce their usage, to think about adopting those energy efficient appliances. But we also need to make sure that we are aware that there are people who are already struggling to keep their houses cool because yeah. they don't have insulation in their walls, right? They have a very really inefficient air conditioning or heating yeah. system. Right. And we need to think about those people too. Mm-hmm.
0: Totally. So how'd you come to, to research this stuff? You have a PhD in industrial engineering and operations research. Is that right? Yes. So were you always looking at issues around energy and, you know, equity and being, or is that something you came to later?
1: So my, um, Yeah, my path through (laughs) this profession, I feel like it has been a meandering of sorts. Mm -hmm. Um, I came in as an electrical engineer in undergrad and every degree I switched the title because I feel like I was, I kept was trying to find that, you know, how can I have my impact? I did a study abroad in Malawi, Africa when I was an undergrad and that really showed me like that there are people who are still living in this world that do not have a reliable access to electricity Uh and rolling blackouts are crazy, right? Like it just, to me, it blew my mind that in 2012 when I was studying abroad, like, we were still having rolling blackouts. And that was just a thing that the government said was going to happen. And there was nothing I could do about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's when I really kind of got into, I want to, like, I want to be a person that helps plan the system better. Like as an electrical engineer, you know, I was working on these like really small circuit breaker things. I didn't really see that like impact. But then when I was in Malawi, I was like, whoa, like we need to, we need to use the technologies that we have better. So that's kind of when I think I shifted away from wanting to create the next new thing mm-hmm. and like, just kind of being a person that like help people use things that we already have better to make sure that people who were left out of the current systems weren't continued to be left out by the next biggest and best thing. Mm-hmm. Um So then in my PhD, I was very involved in like sustainability analysis, but also sustainability trade-offs. One thing that I really loved about my PhD research was my um, advisor was really into, there is not one best solution. And too many times people try to act like there is. Mm, And she said that mm -hmm. not often enough, like, or I guess not often enough do we talk about there are trade-offs and we need to quantify what those trade-offs are who wins and who loses. And let's have a conversation about that. Mm -hmm. And that just really stuck with me. Right. And so for my PhD, I was doing sustainability trade-offs like water consumption, jobs, cost. It was very high level. And then I did an internship at Argonne where we were looking at different decision-maker preferences for equality and how does how much you care about equality change the way that you build a power system in sub-Saharan Africa. Hmm. So that's where I kind of started really getting into modeling for equality and equity huh. and justice. And then I came to CMU after my PhD and everybody says, you know, to make it as a professor, you have to differentiate yourself from your advisor yeah. you to do something. Right. So first year, like a chicken with my head cut off, I was just trying to do everything, applying <laughs> to all these grants and somebody, one of my senior mentors was like destiny you seem to be going way too far outside of your PhD research. Like there's all these things that you're going to have to do to get up to speed. But like there, think about what you haven't done in your PhD research that you would like to do. And I told him, I was really interested in like equity and getting Mm -hmm. that in, like in my PhD, I had done these trade-offs. We didn't do equality trade-offs. And then he goes, you only have a certain number of heartbeats in this world. Use them where they count. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how that conversation ended. And so from there, I was like, I'm going to do equity, like, and that's uh-huh. what I'm going to do. Um, and so that was the first NSF grant I ever wrote was equality trade-offs in decarbonization planning. Um, wow. And that was the first one I actually got. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of was like this, whoa, like follow your passion. And it's like somebody actually will yeah. pay me for that. That's like super cool. <laughs> um, and then yeah. this paper for the energy equity gap actually came about by, I was at a, um, I was giving a talk at the University of Maryland and the organizer for the session, her name was um, Lucy Q. And she was telling me about like this research she was really excited about. She had the smart meter data set and she was looking at heat pumps and heat pump adoption and how it changes overall annual energy consumption. Mm -hmm. And then I just kind of offhand mentioned to her Have you ever thought about how if one household was using more energy over time, like as temperature increases, but the other household doesn't, that could be a hidden form of energy poverty? Have you ever seen anything like that? And she was like, no, but it seems kind of interesting. And then she asked me some more questions. And then, you know, I'm thinking, oh man, like this lady, she has like nature papers. Like she just, she probably thinks my idea is stupid. Right. And then I just kind of went off and I still was thinking about it. And I was trying to map out what data I would need. Then the pandemic hit and Lucy emailed me like, hey, Destiny, you remember that idea? I tried to write it up. I think that we should like, you know, try to do this because I think that like utility companies would be really interested in this. And she had the data set. So it was just like this, you know, storm of. I had talked to her a while ago. The pandemic had an opportunity for us to do something meaningful with it. And then Mm. we started like doing that work for the utility company and she already had the data set and we slightly changed it because at first I was um, kind of talking about the gap between slopes, right? So as Mm. temperature increases over time, like if two households don't have the same slopes, then that could be considered energy poverty. But we realized that like when we actually got into the data that households weren't even having their starting points at the same point, that's what the energy equity gap paper is about. Um, that the starting point is not even the same. And now we're also looking at the slopes as well. So we're, that will be our paper coming up in the future.
0: That's awesome. I love that story. Um, yeah, I just want to I mean, what, I was going to ask you if there was like some because I, I saw in your publications that you were writing about Africa at one point, And then, you know, you had these U.S. papers and I wondered if that was like, you know, you were applying developmental, uh, you know, models to the U.S. case, which I think is makes sense in a lot of cases, actually. Right. But it sounds yeah. like it was a bit more just kind of life organic than than that switch.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, got into this field of energy analysis because of sub-Saharan Africa. And I really, really wanted to do that. I think that there is a desire in the field of sub-Saharan Africa research for sub-Saharan Africa scholars to start leading that research. Right. Uh And for the American scholars to kind of move to the side and be the co-PIs, be the supporting roles. Right. And that's something that I would love to do. But um, I think that for me, I, I had the, I guess, lack of good timing, and I became an assistant professor right before the pandemic hit. Yeah, and yeah. so it's very hard to continue sub-Saharan Africa research when you can't visit. Um, sure. So that was a, you know a bit challenging. But then um, during the pandemic, like when you know I I kind of talked about my colleague Lucy, and she kind of you know worked with me on this type of grant that just opened the floodgates for. Doing it once we had this interesting result, and people were like, Whoa, like there is energy poverty in the US, and people are under consuming in the US, you know, <laughs> like it right. just um it just made it so that I'm like, okay, this is a this is a wave I'm gonna ride because this was my life, you know, like and at first. I feel like in grad school. So I, I talked about the lack of air conditioning and, you know, being at risk of heat stroke and like looking back at that. And I didn't realize I was at risk of heat stroke at the time, but I remember getting sick, you know, during the summer. And then in the winter, we had actually moved in my last year to a oil-based heating house, which was way more expensive than that natural gas-based heating house. Mm. And there was a time when we got disconnected from our service provider because we could not pay our electricity bill. Mm. Right. Like we had paid the oil bill, we did not have enough money to pay the electric bill. And after three months, it got disconnected. And um, and before that, it just like, you know, when I when we got disconnected, it sucked because we would turn off the heat when we left the house. Right. Mm -hmm. And to think we were doing all that sleeping in our winter coats and we still could not afford to keep our our lights on. And then once the electricity went off, we realized it didn't matter that we had paid the heating bill because without electricity, none of the heating actually worked.
0: Right. Right. right.
1: And then later I learned that in the U S not paying your electricity bill, you can get child protective services called on you. Mm -hmm. So to think that people can lose their kids because they do not pay their electricity bill. Right. And, and we're not like giving people assistance for that. When I looked back at those bills, um, those disconnection warnings, there was not a, Hey, you might qualify for law which is the low income housing energy assistance program. You might qualify for energy assistance. Do you need help? What's wrong? Why are you not paying? You've paid for three years consistently on time, like (laughs) really knocked on our door to see what's going on. Right. It's just, it's just gone. And when I learned that people actually lose their kids for, because of that, because of not paying your bill, I'm like, you know, what, why on earth do we think that not being able to pay a bill means that you're an unfit parent, right? Mm -hmm. Why is it easier to get your kids taken away than to get assistance to pay your bill? And so I think that that has now made me zone in on the U S. Um, cause when I learned that, like I'm a foster parent. So Uh it also was like, I learned that after I became a foster parent and just like seeing like how, how detrimental it is for kids to get ripped away from their parents. And then as a foster parent, you know, I'm coming in, I'm trying to help manage these kids, but the system, you know, it's broken. There's a lot of issues and the kids lose everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they Mm -hmm. don't have that sense of security. I read a lot of books. I'm like, I'm a a big reader on it, but I read a lot of books about how, like, you know, when it messes kids up to not have a consistent, parent or Mm. primary care person that actually leads to a lot of mental health issues in adulthood right Mm -hmm. that lack of security that lack of stability and to think that electricity and lack electricity can cause that was just mind-blowing to me
0: yeah totally i mean i i was um it's interesting while i was reading your papers i was also thinking about um I don't know if you've heard of Catherine Coleman flowers book waste, which is about the lack of septic tanks and sanitation systems. Um, she's from rural Alabama from this County. That's like majority black. It's like 80 or 90% black. Um, but she's become a big advocate for septic tanks and, you know, getting septic tanks for poor people in general. And what i the, the connection i am making here is just like, you know uh, you, you know, we punish the poor because it's illegal to not have a septic tank. And, you know, it, these, these septic yeah. systems in Alabama, you know, they cost like $40,000 cause you can't just buy an off the shelf um, septic tank. You need a engineered solution. And so, you know, it's just like another one of these, I was just thinking, you know, it's just another one of these cases where we punish poor people and like you can even go to jail for not having a septic tank. Right. It's just yeah. it's a wild world. It's yeah. crazy.
1: Yeah. I like your phrase of we punish the poor right? Like,
0: yeah.
1: because I do feel like being poor was, you know, one of the toughest times of my life. Like, mm-hmm. but you feel invisible, right? Like I remember when, when we were struggling to pay those bills, like one time my roommate walked in and he saw that I had all this food in the fridge. Like it was the first time my shelf in the fridge had been full. And he was like, how do you have all this food? Cause it was from Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. And I'm like, I got it from the food bank," and he was like, I thought the food bank was for poor people. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I am poor. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was just like one of those things of like, I told him later, like, you should never say that to a poor person. Like, yeah. I just need some help right now. Like I'm struggle busing over here. <laughs> like, yeah. I just want to eat something that's not pasta and sauce. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and it's like this, you know, kind of this mental state of mind of, if somebody is poor, then they deserved it. Like that's one of the things that I kind of felt when I was like hearing people's response, when I first told them like, yeah, I'm going to the food bank and I need some help. One of my cousins was like, why are you doing that? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. you have a dad, why don't you just ask your dad? And it's like, because my dad is raising my two brothers, like, what are you talking about? Like I'm supposed to be independent, you know? And, um, and so then kind of thinking about like how we, expect everybody once they leave high school to be magically good at budgeting and planning and yeah, managing right. their money. <laughs> but we don't actually have any of those classes in high school. It's like no. we teach people calculus in high school. We don't teach basic budgeting classes, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I won't talk about my credit rating at uh, <laughs> as a young person. <laughs> So um, you've also done some neat studies on how COVID mitigation measures like school closures and limiting business operations have affected electricity consumption um, and how that's affected equity, too. Um, so tell us a bit about that, because I, I, I have to say I wondered a bit about that um, just because, you know, we are forced to stay at home. That means we're going to use our utilities more. People are already kind of like living at the edge. So I've always wondered about that. So tell 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 us what you found.
1: Yeah. So one thing that we found were that um, the overall residential energy consumption increased during COVID um, and more so in minority households Mm -hmm. than non-minority households, which, you know, was something that is concerning. Right. So that actually. So then um, that is concerning because the question is, well, are they able to still pay those bills? Mm-hmm. right and how what's happening during covid because we know that people are often hit with this double-edged sword of losing their place mm. of work now they're stuck at home now they're now we're seeing higher levels of energy usage during the pandemic um, when they're stuck at home um, and the other thing that we were um, not able to tie directly into this paper but like um some of the like overall energy usage still was not as high as we might have expected it to be if people were able to use internet, go to school, like you know watch television, do basic entertainment or do working from home things and cooling all of their their um, cooling their home to a a good thermal comfort level. Right, and so that was, I think, really eye-opening because when we have this closure, the question is, how is that going to change the basic necessities of the household, right? Yeah. And how does that change um, how people have to cope when they're stuck in their yeah. home? So I think that that was a big, important, uh, I guess, finding of mm-hmm. that paper, um, and something that we were trying to help. Um, We are helping. We're trying to help utility companies know who to identify, and then how people being stuck at home may have impacted them.
0: Yeah, you also have one on like, did I read it right? It's kind of like projecting what kind of like if we go remote, which is like lots of people are like, oh, we're gonna do more working from home. Like how this might affect you know energy use in the system overall. Was is that? Another one of the papers?
1: Yeah, and that one was um, on remote work and also time of use pricing, Okay, right? So if we do remote work, how might the overall demand in the grid system shift? Mm-hmm. And then once we have that, if we wanted to try to shift it like to be a more flat curve, then how might time of use pricing affect that? How might it affect people's bills. Yeah. Um and um what can we do about that? I think that paper is called Changes in Hourly Electricity Consumption under COVID mandates. And Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll leak to all these in the on the web page. No problem. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, I think when I point to this, um, I work with a group called ALICE at United Way and ALICE stands, it's an acronym, but it's basically a, a measure for economic hardship or the working poor or something like that. And, um, you know, it, it routinely finds that about 40% of American households really struggle to make ends meet. So I think like that's the kind of thing we have to keep in mind when we think about, you know, whether it's COVID mitigation or um, you know, the kind of energy poverty stuff you've been looking at. It's like even small ch- changes in prices or uses can kind of have huge burdens for these families that just don't have much wiggle room.
1: Yeah. I mean, during the COVID pandemic um, for our analysis in Arizona, we were seeing that the COVID mandates and people being stuck at home increased power consumption in the afternoon by 13%. Wow. Right. And so if we're looking at it in the afternoon, this is when solar's going to start going offline potentially. Right. Yeah. Um and so this would be when, like, our more expensive generators are coming back on. And we found that race and income are correlated with electricity consumption changes, right? So it is it is a big deal. I mean, yeah. people are already struggling. And the question is, how do these policies impact the way that they're going to be able to cope and if they are even going to be able to cope? Mm-hmm.
0: So you also sent me a paper you're working on with a colleague in which you examine how national decarbonization strategies um, to fight climate change might affect equity. And at first, when you told me about it, I figured it was about the kind of cost stuff we talked about earlier, you know, like, um, you know, we we set, you know, a carbon tax or something. And then that ends up, you know, affecting the poor because energy becomes more expensive. But no, it's actually, you know, much more interesting because you're you're saying that if we focused on least cost strategies to change, to to decarbonize the system, that this will unequally affect black and poor communities. So tell us a bit about tell us a bit about that. How could decarbonization end up kind of unequally affecting different communities?
1: Yeah. So this is our preprint, which is actually currently in its second revision. So really excited about this one. Um, So, yeah, so air pollution disparities and equality assessments of U.S. national carbonization strategies. So for here, what we did was we used a least cost optimization model to um, basically determine which power plants get deployed, right? How much Mm -hmm. and where and how the nation would decarbonize its electricity generation mix, And then what we did was we mapped the air pollution emissions using a chemical transport model. Uh And then we looked at which census tracts those air pollution emissions would settle in and tied that to different demographic information. And we actually found that across um, all of the decarbonization plans. So we looked at about eight black and poor communities were exposed to the highest concentrations of co-pollutants. So uh-huh. the PM, the NOx, and the SOx, during the energy transition until a national mandate requires 80% or more deployment of renewable or lo- low carbon technologies. Yeah. And so that to me was very you know, important for us to understand, right? Because when we're thinking about, okay, is it 100% by 2035? Is it the USNDC goal? Is it a 1.5, a policy that keeps us below 1.5 degrees Celsius? And we're arguing over all these ones, which is like, which is the best for climate change and greenhouse yeah, gas yeah, emissions? Yeah. My question was, okay, but how does that affect the co-pollutants, right? If we're going to deploy a lot of biomass, where are where are we seeing those biomass plants potentially coming online? Mm-hmm. Given what we know about prices, like, you know, are we de- Are we decarbonizing all the large power plants quicker? Who are those large power plants near and that type of thing. And so I think that this is really important to kind of talk about where are we winning and losing on different uh, decarbonization plans in terms of equality. And so we see that the mandates are really important. Now, the cautionary tale is if you're using a mandate to drive the energy transition, then getting to that 80% is extremely important, right? Mm -hmm. So that is one thing that I do advocate for. People ask me, do I want the 100% by 2035 or the 100% by 2050? Well, we were seeing that if you do the 100% by 2035, right? And let's say that you're getting there and then you're like, oh man, we're not going to make it by 2035. Let's extend it, right? You're just going to extend the um, impacts on the vulnerable groups. And so the The thing is really to think about critically that how do we reach that 80% and how do we do it equitably in terms of renewable energy deployment?
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I was talking to this really smart journalist on, on Friday, and he's doing a series of papers on how we've come to um, kind of fetishize the EV as a solution to uh, you know, climate issues. And so he's looking at I mean, he's looking at a bunch of issues, but one of the things he's looking at is is California's electricity grid and how um, the grid is going to have real trouble taking all the EVs potentially that people are starting to put in their houses. But what it got me thinking about is so often when we do this kind of carbon, you know, when we think about climate change, we think about decarbonization, um you know, we're not kind of like including the whole system in the analysis, you know, like we're not pulling back enough. It's just like EV's good, you know, as in a yeah, and at, at car I went to Carnegie Mellon and was, you know, funded through uh engineering and public policy. And we were trained never to think technologically like that. Don't say EV's <laughs> good, think systematically. But the reason the connection for me here to what you've just been saying is I feel like these equity questions that you are asking are just not a part of the kind of systematically a part of how we're thinking about policy yet. Um, You know? And so what do you think is the road forward there of like really like making it so that it's like a necessary check Mark we're thinking through is like, how are we thinking the equity issue through the equity effects of this policy? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that like one challenge that I see is this, like tensing up of people anytime race comes into the discussion yeah right like when when i was listening to the environmental justice movement and you know online and through podcasts and like news articles and just kind of hearing that government wants to solve environmental justice without having a racial based policy Uh i'm like if Racial segregation and racial targeting is what got us into this mess. Why do you think that anyone any policy except for recalculating based on race would get us out of this mess? Like people yeah. are trying to act like you can be I guess colorblind now even though you weren't in the past and mm-hmm. there are there's evidence that black and brown communities, minority communities, indigenous communities are the worst off right now because of historic segregation and discriminatory policies. So yeah, I think that can be like a huge barrier. Um, you know, when I, when I saw the California policy about, you know, banning the sale of gasoline vehicles, I'm like, okay, that's great. But then it kind of hit me of, whoa, like did they have a policy for increasing public transportation in areas that have never had it right because then now we still have a car dominated society and we have basically like you said before punishing the poor because Mm -hmm. if you can't afford to buy an electric vehicle then you can't afford to buy any vehicle right because Mm -hmm. we know gasoline vehicles are much cheaper than evs at this point yeah and when i was in um i was recently giving a talk in l.a and needed to buy a rental, needed to rent a rental car. Went to this, <laughs> I would say it's a slightly bootleg rental place, but they had mm-hmm. like secondhand EVs, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And every time I stopped, the battery died.
0: It's crazy. Oh. And
1: I was like, whoa, like this is not good. Like, you know. Yeah. Um, and so then the guy eventually gave me another EV, which like he was like, Maybe you need to leave it running for at least 45 minutes before you cut it off again. And I'm like we <laughs> running for forty-five minutes. Like, didn't you, what did you guys do at the rental car place? Right. right. And like, so these are secondhand EVs and things, and so the shelf life of some of these cars is just not lasting as long, yeah. right, as yeah. we would project. And you know, I have a right now. I have a two thousand five Highlander. Um, My next car, I do want to to be an EV or a hybrid yeah. or something, right? But my Highlander it is it's at 200,000 miles right yep. my dad was like my last camry my toyota camry went to 308,000 mm-hmm. miles and so gasoline second second life vehicles are very reliable um mm-hmm. and that so that's like kind of one thing that concerns me but it's like you know when i think about new york city right most mm-hmm. people do not own a car because the public transportation is that good right right and so like somebody recently told me like you know nobody stopped using typewriters because paper got too expensive. Yeah, It's because the computer can do so many more things than you could do with a typewriter. And that's why everybody switched. Mm-hmm. And so if we want people to switch out of their gasoline cars, let's not just focus on making them more expensive. Yes. That is one mechanism that can work for people that have a choice. Right. But there's another alternative too, which is just make public transportation so good that I have no reason to own a car. Yeah. Right. Because um, actually, when I first moved to Pittsburgh, I tried not to buy a parking pass. Uh, but then my bus stopped running at 9 p.m. And no. sometimes I wouldn't get out of a Carnegie Mellon function until 945 10. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these would be functions, you know, provost is there, dean's there. So I'm like, I got to go. It's Christmas party. Right. Right. And so then I was like, okay, well, I got to just buckle down and get this parking pass because I've called Uber twice (laughs) and I have a car sitting at home. Like at this point, I'm spending more on Uber than I would on the parking pass. So now I just have the parking pass. Now that I got it, I'm like, well, I'll just keep using it. Right. Um, But if I had a subway system, a train system, like something that could get me to work in under an hour, right. I wouldn't feel the need to use my personal car. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, that is the biggest part of this EV thing is just how all the uh, alternatives that aren't, you know, aren't being discussed with the kind of fetishization of this one technology.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's because like a lot of times we get focused on the new. Yeah. Which sometimes the new is great, right? Because oh, yeah, it sure. solves a problem that we didn't have. I mean, no, it solves a problem that we have that we didn't have a solution for. But I think that Sometimes we get so focused on the new that we forget that there was a system that worked yeah. before. Like we weren't always dependent on cars.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, tell me, so uh, tell me about this people's energy analytics. Tell, tell us about your company. Yeah. So
1: that is our new um, spin out company from Carnegie Mellon where we are developing out our algorithms and working with different utility companies, public utilities commissions and things like that to actually analyze energy poverty and energy usage in households in their regions. So that's something that we're really excited about because once we published that paper, we got a lot more interest in, you know, what does energy poverty really look like and how can we create scalable solutions Mm -hmm. to identify, address, and mitigate energy poverty, Um, And so that's something that's really exciting to my student, Chu chan Kong and I, about this work potentially, Mm -hmm. because there's other things that, you know, we are planning to do with the company. So one is, you know, what's the effectiveness of the um, energy assistance, right? What's the effectiveness of energy efficiency? How much should utilities, you know, um, be investing in these smart utility investments? And what's the cost recovery mechanism for that? because there are some cases where people are saying they invested in energy efficiency in their homes but they're not seeing the cost savings that were projected uh-huh. and it's because people underprojected and did not understand the underconsumption of energy they think uh-huh. about this energy efficient extra usage as the rebound effect but it's uh-huh. because they had no idea where people wanted to be in the first place so it's not a rebound uh-huh. it's just the alleviation of poverty
0: wow well, that's awesome. So is it, it's you and your student. And are there any other folks from CMU involved?
1: Um. So right now it's my student and I, and we are talking to a couple of other uh, people who have gotten interested in the spin out about potentially coming on and joining our team to help, you know, expand out the business aspect. Yeah. We've had a lot of interest. And so it's been, you know, a really good whirlwind uh-huh. of excitement and changes. Um, we just published the Energy Equity gap paper in March, right? And right. In the summer, we went to an affordability conference where there was a lot of different utility companies and managers and um, different energy assistance directors. And so that's when a lot of excitement came around the research and people were asking if we would do it for their businesses. Uh But then we're like, okay, now this has moved out of research and now it's a commercial project, right? yeah. And so when we were talking with Carnegie Mellon, they were like, you know, this is actually now you're going to have to license it. You're going to have to make a business out of it. And so, you know, it's pretty exciting for us because, you know, we did the Salt River project in Arizona. Now we're working with um, ComEd's data in Illinois and doing an analysis for heat on that. And we're also working with another utility company in the mid-Atlantic region. There's some interest from Florida. So it's just, you know, a really exciting time of it's something I never really expected, right? Mm-hmm. Because normally for my type of models, they're so far in the future. People don't want to pay for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they exactly. just want me to do the analysis <laughs> for free. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, we're talking about energy justice. The Biden administration wants to figure out, you know, how can we make sure 40% of the benefits go to disadvantaged communities? Yeah. And we, with our method and our algorithm, we're able to show the benefit like quantitatively, and we can put a number on it, right? I can say mm-hmm. before you did this, low-income groups were waiting seven degrees longer than high-income groups that are on their air conditioning units. And now after you did energy assistance and energy efficiency, they're only waiting one degree, right? So mm-hmm. I can like mm-hmm. put like a number and we can quantify the number of households impacted. It's scalable. Um, it uses it's data intensive, right? Like, no. and I think that right now we've gone beyond just using surveys, right? Uh Because surveys are very
0: expensive. And there's so many problems with them. Yeah. 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 And like, you
1: know, it matters who fills it out, you know? Um, And so that's been something that's super exciting to me because we also have been able to show like, so in the paper that we did in Arizona for the energy equity gap, we were able to show that when you calculated energy poverty based on energy burden, we identified like 141 energy poor households when we used our energy equity gap measure to calculate the energy poor, we we found 86 energy poor households Hmm. in the, um, in the sample of four, 4,000 households. But then when we looked at, okay, how many households overlap in our energy poor under both the energy burden and our energy Mm -hmm. equity gap, it was only three. So Uh only three households were defined as energy poor under both. And so, the nice thing with our method um, at our company is that we can do energy burden. We can do energy equity gap. We can Mm -hmm. do a couple of other metrics and just kind of get a better sense about what does energy poverty really look like and who's experiencing it. And I mean, I could talk about this for days, but I just (laughs) am so excited about that because to me, I'm like, Whoa, like, you know, if somebody had been doing this when I was like freezing in my house or like yeah, just overwhelmed with heat in my house. Like maybe somebody would have known that I needed some help because it is so much easier to offer help than it is to ask for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Destiny, I think that is a wonderful high note to, uh, to close up with. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Yeah. Lee, thanks so much for inviting me on your podcast.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. Check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and is supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are hosted in the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities, teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the media production manager with Virginia Tech Publishing and serves as producer and sound engineer for Peoples and Things. Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening.
1: Thanks.